Well, first of all, Michelle and all of you who are associated with ODK, thank you very much for bestowing on me this honor. What a ceremony. I, I don't know about the rest of you. It felt a little bit like I was in church twice today. Um, I, um, I'll try to be brief because I think I'm the only thing standing between you and that awesome football team, the Detroit Lions. I'm sure many of you want to uh, get home and watch them. Uh, but what I thought I would do is share with you a few of my observations of leadership. I've been very fortunate in my career to have worked with some wonderful leaders. And so what I'm about to tell you comes from my observation of leaders and also from my study of leaders. At the Hallenstein Center, we have a number of people come in and talk about leadership. So I thought this would be interesting to you. The first thing you notice about good leaders, even great leaders, is that they connect with people. That is such an important quality that they have. This was illustrated to me so powerfully not too long ago when we had a man named Russ Mobby who came to the Leadership Academy at the Hallenstein Center. Now Russ Mobby had an, an amazing career. Uh, he, for 25 years, led the Kellogg Foundation. He took the Kellogg Foundation from being sort of a middling foundation to a foundation that was the fifth greatest philanthropy in the world. So this is a man who had leadership skills. About a week and a half out of our having Russ, he wrote me a little email. He said, Gleaves, I want to know better who my audience are going to be. Could you tell me something about the students, the leadership fellows who will be there? We have some 30 leadership fellows. So what I did was I wrote him back and I said, well, here are the majors. Here's where they stand, their class standing. Here's some of their interests and that kind of thing. He thanked me. And darned if Russ didn't come to the Leadership Academy event where we'd invited him to speak, early. And as leadership fellows came in, uh, he, was, he, he, he was very eager to engage with them. So he'd walk up to them, shake their hand, uh, find out about them. Russ illustrates a principle that I think is very interesting in life. There are two kinds of people, basically. They're the kinds of people who come into a room and they say, here I am, I'm probably the most important person in the room. The second kind of person there is in this world is the person who walks into a room and they say, there you are, there you are, there you are, and I can't wait to get to know you. Russ Mobby was that kind of individual. He came into that room and he worked the room in the best sense of the word. There was nothing he was going to get out of that audience. There were no donations that were going to come to the Kellogg Foundation. He was a people person. He connected with people. He also knew that, pr that principle that people don't care what you know until they know you care. Well, that was Russ Mobby, an outstanding example of a leader connecting with people. A second thing you notice about leaders is that they're passionate. Leaders are extremely passionate people. They are driven to improve something. They're driven to join something in which they can make a difference in life. They see some, some issue that is a problem in our society or in their little group, their little platoon, as Edmund Burke would say. Or they see some opportunity that's never been taken advantage of before and they want to make a difference for the rest of us. A person that I think of, this comes from my work, work experiences, I worked for John Engler for 11 and a half years. Now, I don't mention Engler in any partisan sense here. Whether you agreed or disagreed with his politics is really beside the point of what I'm trying to say here. What I want to emphasize about Engler 
was his leadership capacity and especially this passion of his. Let me tell you what he was like as a kid. When John Engler was uh, a boy, by the time he was 12, 13, 14 years old, he was always fighting with his dad for two sections of the newspaper every morning there in Beale City. He was always fighting over the sports section. He wanted the sports section first, but he also wanted the politics section. Now, how do you explain that in a 12, 13, 14-year-old kid? He was passionate to learn about this state from the earliest age. It's just something that was in him. His dad would talk to him at the table about politics. They had a lot of interesting conversations. Engler would argue with his dad. It just was a very interesting household in which that table talk was very formative. So he goes to Michigan State University, and every class he takes, he thinks, what can I learn from this class to become a leader? Specifically, what can I learn in this class if I want to be a state rep? And by the time he was a senior, he took a class and he wrote a paper that is now famous in which he outlined in some detail with his political science professor exactly what he would do to win an election as a 21-year-old taking on a very established and popular incumbent in his own party. Now that word maverick, you know, that got so popular. Engler back in 1970-71 would have been considered a maverick. And he followed the plan of that paper. He planned the work and he worked the plan. And he ran in the primary. He out-hustled because of his passion, his desire to lead. He out-hustled the very smug opponent, fellow Republican. He out-hustled him. And you know the rest of the story. He spent the next 20 years in the Michigan legislature and then 12 years as Michigan governor. And it started with a college paper. And before that, it started just with this desire to know what was going on in the world around him and to make a difference. A third quality that leaders have is that they have the ability to combine a great imaginative, uh, imaginative capacity, imagination, with practical intelligence. Let me give you another Michigan example of this. This would be Henry Ford. Henry Ford was an extraordinary person. Now, you're hearing a lot about Henry Ford these days because our auto industry has been taking such hits. But you have to go back 105, 110 years ago when Michigan was on the cusp of a very exciting adventure in our economy. Henry Ford was the kind of guy who had this imagination to see what was possible. The idea of the horseless carriage intrigued him. And while he was an engineer at Detroit Edison, and while his work was interesting to him, do you know what this guy did in his spare time? Talk about passion. In his spare time, he built automobile engines and then went on to, to build cars. And he thought, this, this is the guy, this is the craftsman, the tinkerer, who's right in the garage doing this kind of thing. And it's a really remarkable thing. He actually is able to market this car that he builds in his garage, sell it. If you go to Greenfield Village, you can see it to this day. But you know what? He didn't stop there. He realized that if he took the idea of the assembly line, the assembly line had been developed in the meatpacking industry in Chicago. They take 20 workers, and Swift and Armour were in the, the avant-garde of this process, and from the execution of the animal all the way to the packaging, there'd be 20 people as these animals would move by. Henry Ford took that idea, and he said, 
instead of just building a car from scratch in the garage, what if I take it and I put it on an assembly line and have people who are actually able to stand in place and assemble this thing? And then the second thing he thought, because all of a sudden this was generating lots and lots of money, he said, what if I make it possible for the workers to be able to afford what they're building? So he instituted, as you know, in 1914, it's a well-known Michigan story, the $5 a day workday for these workers so that they could become part of what's been called the blue-collar aristocracy that had its home right here in this state. So he made the price of these cars go down and he made it possible for the workers, ordinary working men in those days, women were not on the assembly lines in those days, ordinary working men to buy the product that they made. But you know what? He didn't stop there. This guy had such vision, combined with his practical experience, his intelligence as an engineer. He said, how do I make this system even better? How many of you here have heard of River Rouge? River Rouge. Most of you have. Most, most Michiganders have. Henry Ford starts buying up land along the River Rouge southeast of Detroit. And he says, you know, if I can have a hand, if I can control the process all the way from when the iron, the, the ore comes in and the coal comes in, the, the Great Lakes shipping, if I can control that process and go all the way through to when a car rolls off, then I will be able to make even more cars for more people at a lower cost. And we'll put the nation on wheels, we'll put the world on wheels. The River Rouge complex became the single most important industrial complex in the United States that combined all of the processes. And do you know that by the 1920s, by about 1927, Henry Ford had the process down so well that iron ore would come in and 27 hours later, a vehicle would roll off. In the 1920s, already had perfected that. Now, do you know, ladies and gentlemen, the act of imagination that it takes to be able to do something like that, to see where an industry could go? This is a kid who grew up on a farm whose dad wanted him to be a farmer. He hated farming. He had a different vision. He had imagination. He could see things that no one else saw revolutionizing mass production and the, the wages workers would get and the whole industrial complex became essential to the United States becoming the superpower it was in the last century. A fourth quality that these leaders have is that they have strong character. Leaders are people who have to make tough decisions. Sometimes that's the best short definition of what a leader is. You know how to make tough decisions. And I'm going to tell you about another Michigander that you know very well in this town, Gerald R. Ford. I had the privilege of interviewing President Ford a number of times. And when we would talk about character, he would always really light up because he knew that to make the kinds of decisions that leaders are going to make an impact, you've you, you got to stand firm. So this is, this is what uh, President Ford did that's really remarkable. He comes into office with a lot of goodwill. He's getting about 70% approval rating in 1974. And he decides that he's got to do something about the preceding president, Richard Nixon, who had resigned in disgrace. Every press conference, Ford was dogged by questions. What are you going to do about Richard Nixon? Is Richard Nixon guilty? Are you going to pardon him? What are you going to do about him? Are you going to prosecute him? 
And Ford said, you know what? I'm spending fully one quarter of my time answering questions about Richard Nixon. We've got to remove the Richard Nixon factor out of this presidency, out of my presidency, so I can move on to address all of the economic concerns, inflation, and you know all of the other things that were going on, our economic problems. We were having an energy crisis at that time in the mid-70s as well. He goes to church one Sunday and he decides, 30 days into his presidency, he decides to pardon Richard Nixon. He knew he would pay a price. He knew he'd pay a personal price and a political price. He thought it was the best thing to do for the country, even if he personally paid the price and his political party paid the price. He pardons the president that Sunday afternoon. His approval rating had the most dramatic drop in 24 hours of any president in any single day. Went from about 75% to 50% overnight. That's the cost he paid. But he was willing to pay it because that was the price of leadership. The leader has to make tough decisions, not for himself, not for his party, but for his country in that capacity. So it was a remarkable story, and a lot of people criticized President Ford for many years, but lo and behold, just about everybody, the journalists who had covered him and who criticized him, and his colleagues formerly in the House, and senators, and subsequent presidents, even of the opposite party, said, Gerald R. Ford provides an outstanding example of leadership. And we can be proud of what our presidents are capable of because he made the tough decision when no one advised him. No one advised him to do that. He made that decision alone. A fifth and final quality I'll, I'll bring out is that leaders have the ability to forge a consensus. If leaders are passionate, if they have that imagination, if they have that practical intelligence, if leaders have people skills that we talked about, then they have the capacity to bring people together once they've identified that problem and say, let's work on it together. I'll use another example in conclusion from John Engler's experience. One time Engler went to Washington and the congressional delegation that he was dealing with had been really recalcitrant. They didn't want to do anything to move the country forward. And so he was called in by a congressman to, to come and talk to people, sit around the table and try to move the agenda forward. And this is what Engler did. He said, okay, I realize I'm a governor, but I'm gonna give you the perspective from the states. There are things that you can be doing. Now, there are 15 people in this room. We should not leave this meeting until we have something that we can go out and do as a unit. Because people did not elect us to come and just yak, 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 to be great explainers, but to be people who actually accomplish something. And so Engler said, Let's name one thing right now that all 15 of us can agree to do. Even if it's a baby step, what's one thing? And sure enough, uh, they came to an agreement within a minute about something all 15 of them in the room could agree to. Said, okay, now a second thing. Say a second agenda item. How many of us can agree to this? And 14 of the people, 14 of the 15 agreed that they could do that. And they looked at the one person who had some reservations and the governor just worked with him and said, okay, what do we need to do to bring you along so that we're unanimous when we walk out of this room that we're going to get something done? And they worked with him. And they negotiated. Then they had two items. Third agenda item. Well, they got 13 people to agree. 
And then the governor led the discussion working with the two people who had reservations and problems. But it's that ability in our free and open society to get along with people, to forge a consensus, and work with them in good faith. Say, I know we might disagree about things, but we have a country to look out for. The people have the power, and they have loaned us the power when we come to Washington. They have loaned us the power. We don't ultimately have the power, and it's our responsibility to get something done. Well, you can see that when you take a great leader, they, I think they invariably have these people skills, they have passion, they have imagination, they have practical intelligence, they have a strong character, and they have the ability to work with others. And my hope for you is that you, at the start of your leadership journey, are able to do great things. And I'm very honored to be part of the good company that was up here on this stage. Thanks.